Hello and welcome to the British Society of Gastroenterology Trainees podcast. My name is James Kennedy and I'm a gastroenterology trainee in the Oxford Deanery. Today's guest is Professor Anton Emmanuel. Anton is a Professor of Neurogastroenterology at University College London and works as a consultant gastroenterologist at the National Hospital for Neurology and Neurosurgery, Queen Square. He graduated in medicine from the University of London and completed his PhD in assessment of autonomic gut innovation in functional gut and pelvic disorders at Imperial College London. Anton is currently the Royal College of Physicians Medical Director of Publishing and prior to this was Editor-in-Chief of Frontline Gastroenterology for eight years. He has also just been appointed Interim Senior Clinical Lead for the NHS Workforce Race Equality Standard Programme. He has been heavily involved in the BSG throughout his career and is currently BSG Treasurer. So welcome to the podcast, Anton. Thank you very much. First of all, um, let's talk about your path into gastroenterology, as I think it's quite fair to say it's a, a bit of an unusual one. Well, it's ever so nice of you. I, I feel kind of um, slightly awkward being uh, this guy. I'm not, I'm not somebody who's necessarily very I don't think I'm, uh, I enjoy talking about myself. I probably do it more than I want to. So I'm flattered to be asked. And I hope what I say is of of some value um, because all our stories are pretty individual. Um, and it's I, it, I know that what I, one of the themes, what I'd like to say, I guess, is that I, I really strongly believe in the idea of, of finding somebody who's going to look after you and put an arm around you um, proverbially. And if this is a one way of encouraging that then I'll do it so yeah the answer that I I never I left medical school in 1990 um, with the intention of being a physician and in my mind I thought that would mean being a a neurologist Um, so I did the various jobs that I meant to do doing that and then decided early on in those days this is about before Kalman 1990 I qualified um, that you could, I, I decided to do a PhD um, as my first um, after SHO jobs um, and had the great good fortune of going to St. Mark's and uh, came under the wing of um, uh, two people, uh, one exiting person, um, John Leonard Jones, and one incumbent, uh, Michael Cam. And I found that two of them to be the most captivating clinicians I'd met and at that point I'd been a doctor for about two and a half years three years um they were addicted to patient contact they transmitted an excitement and an energy about the individuality of patients stories and how that symptom detail helped you explore somebody's physiology and how through understanding physiology that opened the door into a whole dimension of psychophysiology and why they're presenting now and then that opened the door into somebody telling you about their life and so I went from I came into that to do a PhD on autonomic control of gut function in Parkinson's disease with my neurology hat on and ended up um, converting into becoming a full-time gastroenterologist because of the influence of these two powerful teachers Um, and in those days you could you could jump around very easily, uh, freedom that uh, most of you don't have these days. And so I became a gastroenterologist and then went to do some general uh, hospital jobs um, with fantastic clinicians in Hertfordshire who really, again, shaped me, made me uh, a competent-ish uh, at that point endoscopist. Um, and then, but looked after me, exposed me to general medicine um, in a really useful way. 
um, and then came back to St. Mark's as a senior lecturer. So it is a very peculiar route um, into gastroenterology, but one which I think felt organically who I was and the other sort of message if I can dare to say there's a message to anyone's career certainly mine is that it was it it fulfilled something within me not the superficial thing about being interested in neurology and therefore now being a neurogastroenterologist but the much more deep thing which is that uh, I'm a very nosy person I come from a family of non-medics who are pretty um, simple uh, working people um, and the idea that somebody would tell you their life story or intimate details of aspects of their life um, to a complete not a stranger uh, was mesmerizing and the fact that then I could translate that into a clinical uh, bit where I could then try and understand a disease and then try and help um, change the course of uh, somebody's uh, symptoms was for me the most exciting thing. So the neurogastroenterology thing found me in a way which absolutely fitted organically, and that was my great good fortune. That's a very long answer to a very short question, wasn't it, James? No, that's excellent. So that so that love of neurology obviously never never left you, and that you'd say that what you call nosiness or curiosity. Um, would you say that's at the heart of of, of neurogastroenterology in terms of history taking? And yes, no, I think that's right, James. I think I think that's the thing I would say is that probably if I and this is going to sound very anti-diluvian, but I think and I don't endoscope, I don't scope anymore. Um, and I think I, at, at so much at heart of this is that idea that the centrality of the history, the idea that exploring somebody's life um, and their experience of their symptoms and how they perceive their symptoms is the most important part. So you and I may both have a peptic ulcer, um, but the fact that it'll behave in different ways for me compared to you is what's really interesting Um, and that idea of uh, the history being the key to understanding that is what I was really really motivated by Um, and I guess the reason I mentioned endoscopy is that I I always found the technical part of endoscopy reasonably um, you know enjoyable as a craft but I I began to dislike the idea and I, this is again a very personal point of view and I express it since you've asked kindly um, I've always found that idea of the endoscope being the thing that we define illnesses by as being a bit odd so the idea and again I'm happy to receive criticism from this but the idea of endoscopy negative diseases or inter-interval diseases. I recognize it's a kind of pragmatic process way of looking at disease, but for me, I'm more interested in the in the symptom-based things and I'm less interested in the organicity of something. So neurology is very much around that. Of course, there's organic conditions, but that, you know, the history telling you whether a sudden onset versus a more delayed versus a more insidious versus a decades-long onset, all those things are part of that narrative and that's just timing as countless other aspects. So that historic part of neurology is really what I've always loved. And the fact that I now get to work with neurology patients and above all work in a place like Queen Square with its kind of small expert group of people uh, looking after expert patients um, and with that kind of expertise of nursing and ancillary services and speech and language and so on, that's such a treat to be around such brilliance in one area that, you know, that's the other thing that I would get from a neurologist i would say is that sense of um being able to work in this truly multidisciplinary way for long before that was a kind of populist idea that's really great since you started your research journey with your phd there have been leaps and bounds within within your field to within neurogastroenterology 
is it um it may not be an easy question but what do you think is the most important thing that's changed in the past 20 years mm. um see i meant to say that i'm expecting that question and i didn't actually uh, um interesting um and this is again going to be a like all these answers on these podcasts you're doing it no doubt be very individual um for me it's the thing about uh, the fact that we can try and ally physiological change to people's symptoms so i'm sure peers will have done fantastic work and would cite things like understanding motility better by mri or new drugs having much more targeted action of the mucosa rather than the non-specific actions that we've had for a long time all those are exciting but generally for me the thing that i would say i use most often in the clinical space which is what i ultimately am although we're kind of busy academically and have been blessed by having you know now 29 completed phds or mds um the thing that still i would say is most influential in my practice is the physiological things where i can explain somebody's symptoms try and get an explanatory model try and use the explanatory model to change the patient's way of thinking maybe use psychological or dietary therapies then use drugs alongside that and so things for me like um the demonstrations of um physiological measurement correlating with symptom types the idea of being able to phenotype patients more succinctly so rather than disregarding say ibs or dyspepsia as one lump being able to differentiate those not by just by symptoms but taking symptoms plus so in this case symptoms plus a radiological measure of transit or mri measure of transit or certain sensitivity of the mucosa or uh, reflex changes that for me is the exciting bit and so the the bits of um neurogastro that have excited me most are the ones which try to correlate symptoms with physiology and then really excitingly those papers which have tried to correlate psychological function or brain function or cognitive processes with physiology with symptoms so that axis of saying you know i think therefore i am business you know how how does the gut influence that i mean the, the gut is of course the most interesting bit of your body from my perspective inevitably i'm sure you and i both share that perspective nothing else uh, having all these multiple organs with multiple endocrine and homeostatic functions and the fact that all of that can be regulated so elegantly by a nervous system most of which is subconscious but which you have ultimate control of deciding whether you swallow whether you go to the bathroom all those subtleties having that interplay of neurology and endocrinology and hemostasis and homeostasis all of that is so thrilling that for me that bit of um i genuinely get excited when there's a study which shows that one aspect of that can be illuminated and then i can then explain to a patient effect so the stress response is this and you and i have a stress response but yours may be triggered by something quicker or may last longer than mine and that's because of this and i that's that for me gives me a sort of a, a horse to ride um with the patient to help them take them on that and therefore i can then get to a, a quicker end point or a better end point than just saying here's the drug or here's the surgeon i'm going to send you to or whatever that to me feels a much more exciting thing to explain somebody's disease to them and then get them on board um and yeah and that's, that's a very very long answer to a very succinct question fantastic and um so changing tack a little bit now um i t- want to talk a bit more about your involvement in medical publishing so it's been a theme that's run throughout your career and i, I just kind of want to know what drew you to getting involved in editorial work um for example with frontline gastroenterology mm. and then subsequently the royal college of physicians 
Um, you're very good for my ego, James. I should I should keep you around more often. Uh, makes me feel like I've had a plan in my life. Um, so the answer is that, like I think most things in life, and this probably reflects, um, I would say, a philosophy of life for me, um, is that I think most of these things are serendipitous. I never, you know, I was a clinician who did some academic work and had the good fortune of, therefore, being able to work with young people who published um, and. There, and you, know, you sort of work in that academic space as well as a clinical space. And I made a choice not to, you know, I, you know, we have to do the things that we think we're good at or like. And so I chose to have um, time with my family. I chose to have time as a clinician. I chose to have time as a, a researcher. I didn't choose to do any other sort of more managerial stuff. And so it is a complete sort of coincidence when, again, back to my idea of mentorship, people I really respected uh, within and without gastroenterology said, you should think about um, going into that kind of, you know, you, you like writing, um, you, you, you like talking, as you can tell from this, um, and maybe you should try and find a way of doing that. And you're good at sort of collating people's thoughts. Um, so oh, it's very nice to hear. So I thought, okay, well, and then I was approached to, um, went at a time when Frontline had just, I was just sort of launched. Um, and there was an appetite from um, the fantastic colleagues of the BSG and the BMJ who co-owned the journal um, to really develop this as a, as a st stream. You know, uh, Imad El-Omar was running gut and following on a sequence of outstanding editors is really taking it to this extraordinary dimension of being a high high impact in every sense publication but it became clear that that kind of there was a space for uh, clinicians who were busy in practice to report experience that we could learn and share from um, and that was what frontline was designed for and i again was really fortunate to be invited to take that on at an early stage and work with outstanding people in bmj and bsg as i say and then being allowed the freedom one of the things you have as an editor is you're given a lot of freedom within the rules of publishing to choose your team, to choose the direction of travel. Um, and it was a really, oh, it, it is, it's a, it's a fun job. You get genuinely get to get brilliant people's contributions and the contributions which are weaker actually are as instructive because you learn to understand why things are weak. You have a visceral sense that they are, but when you see something which isn't so good, you think, oh, okay, that, that helps me understand why that last paper wasn't so good either, even though I couldn't express it. So you get this great uh, tide of stuff coming in, hopefully, if you're a uh, journal which gets lots of submissions, you get this tide, you get to make decisions about it uh, initially, and then more importantly, then the ones which are worth, worth um, troubling reviewers for, you get to send on to reviewers, you get reviewers' thoughts, two or three of your peers, expert in that area, and then I love reading the, the paper again with those expert thoughts in my mind, uh, and then seeing, okay, this actually has legs on it, so we'll like, ask people to revise it. And so you get to shape a paper. So somebody has done all the hard work of making the sculpture, and you get to sort of shine the light on it. Um, and that's that, for me, is a really lovely thing to do as a professional thing. It feels like you're passing on a little bit of something you know, but it feels like you're then showcasing something exciting because there's nothing you've been published. And it's just the nicest feeling to see that this thing that you were hammering out at, you know, two in the morning on a workday night when you're busy and preoccupied and thinking this is the worst thing I've done, why don't I agree to do it? And suddenly it's there to show your mum and dad and to 
you know, it's 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 lovely, and to be able to be part of that process every every month or whatever is is such a such a treat. Um, so uh, again, that's a that's it's that thing about sharing the bits that I've been lucky enough to have, and that's why editing for me feels such a fun job. And then uh, I was in kind enough, everyone was kind enough to ask me to do a second term, so I I did that, and then stepped across and thought that was closed just as a chapter and I'd done that and we'd see where it went and then was um, invited by um, Jane Dacre as it was then and then subsequently Bod Goddard and we need to go as president of the college to um, to uh, work on the journals in the college and there are multiple journals in the college as you know um, and being able and again having a mixture of functions uh, and being able to work and subsequently now having a job with what they call the the medical director of publishing in the college um, again the kind of really responsible job for more much more general medical thing and so in that niche that I've painted myself into as a neurogastroenterologist um, you lose track of medicine I haven't done a general medical take forever um, and so being sort of forced to reconnect as being a physician and actually has made me a, a better neurogastroenterologist. So reading this range of papers over the last couple of years and other things hey, um, has more than just kept me abreast of the big headlines, but actually it's, it's showed me the detail which you can translate so much from. Um, so for me, and this is a quick plug now if you forgive me, ClinMed is a really lovely publication to share because all of you who do general medicine will come across these patients and that idea of having a, a tier of functional knowledge I mean functionalizing functionally useful um, functionally useful knowledge um, for patients that are coming across as more and more patients with more and more complexity and more and more unusual drugs and devices implanted in them and so on you know to have a working understanding of why your colleagues have done that beyond what you get from a letter in the clinic is really i think helpful so we're never going to be and never want to be in the tier of the kind of bmjs and lancets obviously but there's a place for a, a journal to share that kind of a bit like frontline actually since you you raised it earlier on uh, um to have that kind of clinically useful knowledge which people can translate into their practice outside their speciality area so for gastro for hematologists for whatever else that for me is a really exciting thing congratulations on your latest appointment with the nhs workforce race equality standard program should i talk about that for a second yes please yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, um it's uh, it's bursting out of me because it's it's exciting and new and i um i'm a magpie for new things um yes yeah, so i as I mentioned earlier on, I've never done any managerial um, type thing, so I was kind of surprised, astonished really, um, to be uh, approached about it initially, uh, was pretty ambivalent, and um, and then and then have come to, obviously the agenda is close to all our hearts, and I don't think me any more than anyone else, uh, by virtue of uh, being from an ethnic minority background, um, but I certainly feel the, the pain of inequality in gender issues and um, in sort of sexual orientation issues and disability issues, I feel that pain very acutely is one of the things that I'm aware that I am sensitive to. Um, and so this um, felt like a, an exciting opportunity. And I, I, I guess it, it, it's, a op for me, it feels like the right time. So for somebody who's completely naive to managerial type things, um, why would I go into a kind of a a gigantic job in some ways like this in NHS England um, and for me for the you know 2020 is um, whenever you're listening to this podcast uh, was uh, um, an extraordinarily weird time at professional level at personal level um, and you know 
two gigantic things happened this year, effectively, uh, in a historic sense for me. One, obviously, was the was the COVID thing. Um, and the second, uh, I think, was the change in view of the race issue in Western countries. Um, and Black Lives Matter, I think, has reached an uh, idea and is, is, a, is definitely there's a momentum to this, which I think is different to other times when we've felt the pang of, uh, of racism in our country. You know, I go back to even before Stephen Lawrence, but I feel like you know each each year we've had this thing where we we read or every year or two we rediscover through some event that there is racism rife in our country, like in many other countries in the world. And I think the thing that's unique about this is that I think Black Lives Matter may be coming as it did in the terms of the timing with the rest of the global events, um, but it has made people. Um, feel comfortable talking about this more freely it's made people feel more comfortable expressing allyship it's allowed people to to voice their stories without feeling like i'm being a bit chip on my shoulder type thing and it's created a sort of a, a dialogue i think between um what was regarded as a very marginal idea of something which is slightly overstated i think if i state that genuinely this time last year we probably a lot of people would have said that to the thing now where we feel actually look we need it's incumbent on us and the irony of course is that the evidence has been there forever i mean for at least 40 years showing that any workforce which is more diverse like your microbiome um has functions better it you get better outcomes you get and in terms of healthcare, it's been shown again and again better patient outcomes, better running through a process, smoother, more health efficient, more cost efficient services um, have been shown again and again by having that broadest diversity of uh, what's available in your area. So for me, um, I, I feel that the combination of that BLM thing, plus the impact of um, the pandemic and COVID-19 having a disproportionate effect on on the deaths of and the morbidity of uh, black and minority ethnic people from the terms of who was most exposed, the Uber drivers, the staff in the hospital, the frontline um, uh, staff in particular, being disproportionately uh, BME background, that said to me that here's an opportunity for actually using that momentum that's there to try and you know use the jargon turn the dial a bit to go from being kind of well-meaning hand-wringing every year or two to being something where we can try and use the power of NHS England and the power that a position like this has to actually be vocal about this at a time when there's allies around so for me everything about that inflection point felt like a good time to pivot this uh, and res has been in existence uh, thanks to the hard work of my predecessors beginning with roger klein and then uh, yvonne coggill and Herbie blackby recently has been in existence and has done a fantastic job of sort of indicating the areas of problems and beginning to set up programs to reverse that and being able to kind of build on their legacy for me is a really exciting time at a point where there's a pivot. So anything that we're able to achieve is based on that legacy of those hard work of colleagues allied to the, the right moment. Oh, well, I mean, all the best with the role. And I, I really hope that we can you know, leverage the momentum, as you said, to, um, to make some meaningful change come out of 2020, really. Well, if ever you want me to come back in 
uh, you know, I'm, one of the things I'd like to do is I'd like to look at how subspecialities and regions perform variably in this area. You know, we're beginning a little project in the journals of looking, for example, at uh, how we handle journals coming from uh, BME people, whether, because in theory, there should be no bias because we don't know what their ethnicity mm -hmm. is from there, but we can trace it back by doing a sort of bit of Google searching and so on. And we're just going to look and see whether, and I think we have to expose our own failings uh, I'm very happy to do that as close to home as possible um, and I'm very happy to come back if ever you want a, a rant about that you can see how well I rant. Again this might be a quite a difficult question but what would you say is your proudest achievement to date? Oh I think in terms of in terms of within medicine you mean James? Um, within or without? Well without it's the fact that I've managed to um, keep um, five people around me who um have been in, you know who, who who i feel love me and look after me and that's a wife and four children uh, that is undoubtedly without being too schmaltzy about it and the single most enduring and uh, precious thing that i'll ever ever uh, own um that sense of being part of something like that and in a professional capacity i would say without question for me the the fact that we've had PhD and MD fellows come and spend two or three years with us um, grow. It's just the most brilliant thing. I, I'm not a gardener, but I get the sense from talking to friends who garden of seeing something, uh, seeing things evolve in your under your tutelage as a gardener, that is. But seeing people's brains stretch and them shape themselves and coming along uh, and finding a path in their career and you're being a tiny little bit of that. Um, it's just the best thing being able to see these um, now colleagues emerge um, and take flight. And there's a kind of expression that we grew up with in, in cultures about the two most important things you can give people you well, your children is actually a thing, but our roots and wings. So the idea of giving your children, for example, roots in their background and then wings to take off as the point they need to take off. And that's very much the, the privilege of being an academic supervisor is that. So doing clinical research, I've never really been a lab researcher. I've never had the competence or talent or brain to do that. But being a clinical researcher, seeing these extraordinarily capable young people come in and then take flight whether it's to become academics themselves or whether it's to become uh, clinicians, full-time clinicians. And most of them, and I'm proud to say, have gone on to be incredibly successful. Um, and very, very few, um, probably one, maybe two, have stayed in neurogastroenterology. So it's not about following footsteps or anything like that. It's much more that people find their own path. And that's just the best thing um, for me without any question in my professional life. That's excellent. And, um, and you seem to manage to have 25 hours in every day to do, achieve all the things that you do do um outside of um outside of medicine what do you try to do to to relax you know i i'm a big believer in having time for that i mean i say um because i've got an incredibly supportive um family environment which really sustains that um i i'm a, I'm a serial amateur um and i like knowing things uh, as you probably gathered from the things i was saying earlier about editing i love um, I go through extreme passions for things, some of which uh, die out and some of which uh, stay on. So if I quote the things that still stay on that I do 
with zeal, not necessarily with talent. Um, I I really like learning, um, learning and playing the guitar, and I like doing that in a in a sort of a group setting rather than just um, uh, for my own self. Um, and developing and learning that, you know, I'm not a talented musician, but having the kind of muscle memory bit that I've lost by not doing endoscopies, still activated there is fun. I've taken and really still enjoy hugely beer brewing um so i'm a, a little domestic brewer um i i write appalling poetry but i like the idea of having struck structured um things i have to do and then allowing my head to run wild so basically the thing that runs through all the stuff i do has enthusiasms i realized sitting in a bath a few months ago was that i i i, I like doing things where there are rules but where i can I can mess around in my own way within those rules. So it's like having the boundaries and then I can go nuts between those boundaries and that so anything like that I, I will take up. Pure learning things like learning a language I'd love to do, but I know I never will because I'll just lose discipline and start wanting to create uh, anglicized versions of that language, which is really no use to anyone. Um, but yeah, things where I can create a hybrid uh, of what the rules are with my own little um, crinkles in it is where I enjoy to leave off, uh, if you had to pass on one piece of advice for an mm. early career gastroenterology trainee um, or someone considering applying for, for gastroenterology mm. or perhaps perhaps neurology, um, what, what would it be? Um, this is going to sound a bit weird, isn't it? I, I'd say hopefully to be lucky, or if not lucky, it probably is a bit of serendipity, but it's also a bit of finding somebody. So I can't express strongly enough how much I feel one needs mentors and guides through one's career to help you know what is inside you because you don't you know I think medicine is such a long process of the training and then you enter into this kind of apprenticeship where you're just running through the hoops having somebody who can take time with you invest in your personal story understand your trajectory listen a bit and then try and not to open doors for you, but anything like that, but just to help you reflect back in the mirror what may be the way to go. If you can find somebody who is interested in you in that way, it may be a, a clinical colleague, it may be a, a superior, it may be somebody in a parallel area. The lovely thing about medicine is that so many of us in medicine are, are there because we like the idea of being involved with people and obviously that's with patients, but sometimes that is involved in sort of the mentoring of colleagues. And so finding somebody who can give you that or who, you know, in some you know formal or informal way, I would say is the most important thing. Because I think the thing about keeping abreast of the discipline, getting your hands, because all that you'll do anyway, because you like the job. The part that you that's worth thinking about is to help shape how you like that job, is to try and get an external voice, uh, which can look at you slightly more objectively, and which can also look over the hedge in a way that you can't slightly. Those two things, I think, are the really critical parts that a mentor can give. And we've seen a, a real focus on mentorship, haven't we, within the the BSG of late? You're you're involved in the mentorship scheme. I have been, yeah. No, I I think it's the one of the most brilliant things that you know in in the time of Catherine um, and before. It it's just such an important bit of this to create within the speciality um, that. But you know, I think it is an exclusive. You may find somebody who is a transient. Uh, mentor for you in a useful way as well. But yeah, I think that's such an important um, sort of database of uh, potential mentors uh, to have and do tap into that if you're thinking oh do I really need to is it an imposition of my time 
uh, this isn't meant to be a commercial for that, but I think it is such an asset and it'll help you in ways that you don't recognize you need to be helped, if you see what I mean, or that can you don't need to be helped, but it can be improved, improve your quality of your working life. That's excellent advice. Anton, thank you so much for your time. What a pleasure. Thank you. Um, and yeah, all the very best with your your personal journey as well. Thank you. Real pleasure to speak to you. Okay. Take care, James. Thank you for listening to the British Society of Gastroenterology Trainees podcast. Please do listen to our other episodes available at www.bsg.org.uk forward slash trainee dash podcast on SoundCloud, Spotify, iTunes and Pocket Casts. And don't forget to give us a rating and leave a review wherever you listen.